0: Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica, the smoke funneling out of the back of the car, Stanfield drives by. On this show, we'll talk all things Phoenix from the Arizona Nationals and set up a Winter Nationals in Pomona. And it's Tripp Tatum for the first time in his career, 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. The season's two races in and already there are major storylines developing. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car, going through the finish line stripe. Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a by a day and a half. Both Manson and Heinz bikes are out. And it is crazy town and Pro Stock motorcycle. Hey everybody, it's Brian Loans back with another episode of the NHRA Insider. It's one of those great quick turnaround weeks as we just finished the NHRA Lucas Oil Arizona Nationals, and we'll head immediately to Pomona, California for the Lucas Oil Winter Nationals, which, uh, yeah, I know it's not winter, but hey, it is still one of the great legacy races on the NHRA Tour, the second oldest national event that uh, we have in existence, and it promises to be another great weekend. The weather forecast for Southern California um, looks more kind of Midwestern than it does California this time of the year. High temperatures are not expected to go uh, any higher than, say, 65 degrees on any of the three days that the professional cars will be running. Thursday may be a little on the moist side for our sportsman racers, but uh, all of that is stuff yet to talk about. So this show is going to be a, a me show because I am one of the few people that actually abandoned the West Coast to come back home, and I will be leaving in about 24 hours to go back out West to prepare for the Booner uh, Nationals in Pomona. Most everybody else stayed out West, uh, including my normal cohorts when we do a pre-race show. Tony and uh, Kevin's tied up as well doing his work for National Dragster. The drivers are all out West, and so basically what we'll do this week is we'll kind of talk Phoenix, we'll set up Pomona, and then next week we'll catch up with uh, drivers that have absolutely kind of, um, absolutely kind of set themselves up to be in that conversation about uh, either succeeding in these first two races or maybe scuffling and struggling. And so, you know, when we look at what happened in Phoenix, first off, uh, sellout crowd Saturday, Sunday, banging crowd Friday. Um, you know, the question is still lingering. Um, obviously, it was it was set up to be purported to be reported to be the final national event we'll have at wild horse pass Motorsports park. And it may well be um, the one thing that's kind of in the air is the fact that there's been no, you know, closing date of the track given they have a full schedule of events in 2023 uh, to kind of run their whole season. And so because of the fact there's been no hard stop date given, there is still that lingering hope out there. And the fact that we, you know, had these huge crowds. We had such support. We had fans literally chanting, save the track, save the track. We had the leadership um, of the Hila River tribe out there, including the tribal governor uh, and other kind of dignitaries. And uh, I know what they saw. And I know what I saw. I saw a rabid fan base. I saw great racing action. And I saw tens of thousands of people who would be crestfallen if, uh, if this place were to close. Now, that's not to say there's no hope um, for anything else to go on either, as I'm not going to elaborate on a huge number of details here. But safe to say that there is a strong effort uh, among local enthusiasts, business owners, racers, ETC in that area to have another option, if need be, down the road. So let's hope we don't have to do that. Let's hope Wild Horse Pass Motorsports Park is here to stay for a while or a few more years, whatever it is. Um, The idea... That we're never going back there uh, is not necessarily one that's in steel or you know kind of in 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 iron. It's not cast in anything right now, and we're, we all got our fingers crossed that the display that was shown last weekend uh, motivates uh, tribal leadership to maintain the racetrack and certainly maintain our footprint in the Phoenix area. But like I said, that doesn't mean all hope is lost if that's not uh, if that's not in the cards for next year. Stay tuned, and we will keep you as posted as we can here on in the Insider Podcast. So when we talk about the big kind of storylines, in my opinion, coming out of Phoenix, one of the first things we have to talk about is the Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge. And this is one of those great examples to me of you don't really know until you know. And in my mind, I was excited to kind of experience the Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge for the first time. I was interested to see how it would be received, how the racers would... Um, would kind of use this, uh, how they would react to it and how they would participate in it. And especially following a Friday qualifying session that was quite frankly, less than stellar, uh, where very few cars went down the racetrack in a representative fashion on Friday night. It was going to be one of those things where, you know, are people really going to race this thing on Saturday or are they going to be more conservative to try to put up some numbers and make sure they get a good spot on the ladder. And the answer is they raced it. And I will tell you that it is. It was more energetic than I expected it to be. It was. It was to a degree more compelling. I just. Again, you don't know until you know. And when you're sitting there and and listen, I think one of the prime examples of of what this contest now means and and what the implications are with the points and the money and the fact that people are actually out there racing, you know, comes from. We saw Steve uh, Torrance double step the car on on Saturday and. That is not something that happens in qualifying, if ever, especially with a guy like Steve Torrance. So, you know, he was geared up in a race mentality. He was geared up trying to leave on Doug Coletta. He was geared up trying to attack the starting line, perhaps in a way that he doesn't normally do during a qualifying session. That also happened to be the first round of the Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty challenge. We saw Alexis DeGioia win it in Funny Car. We saw Doug Coletta win it in Top Fuel, significant because it continues to illustrate the Coletta Rise the Coletta advancement of the fuel top fuel program. Um, You know, Sean Langdon made the final round, came up short, but made the final round against Justin Ashley, and did so in a very strong fashion. That car has gone from just being a mid three seventies car to a now a low three seventies car. It would certainly shock me if we didn't see it into the into the sixties with some depth. We know Doug's car can get there, and so the I said it on the television show. I'll say it again here. The Coletta Top Fuel side of things looks better in two races than they have in two years, and I don't think that's overstating it. I think those cars are now very much present and very much at the forefront of people's minds as uh, being uh, potentially difficult to handle, especially with the quality of competitor you have in the seat of said race car. I look at Chad Green. Chad Green is off to a Cinderella start to the season, makes a second semifinal in a row, made it in Gainesville, makes it in Phoenix. That means he'll be back in the Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty contest as well. And that car is making its bones on completing runs. It is going to the finish line. It is not smoking the tires. It is running mid to low 90s. And while it is not setting these record-breaking elapsed times, we watch Chad as a driver driving very, very well, Daniel Wilkerson tuning very, very well, and the car is performing to their standard. So uh, he has been a standout in the Nitro Funny Car ranks maybe beyond what anybody expected. And again, that's a team we've watched improve, but this is a team that, at least over the first couple of races, has not simply shown itself to be an improved team, it has shown itself to be a contending team, which is really great for Chad and his entire team. We did an interview with Chad uh, as he talked about kind of the environment that's going on there, the chemistry amongst everybody working on the car, and the kind of upbeat, confident mood that they are all experiencing. So big props to Chad Green and the entire team. We know we saw some carnage, of course, uh, as we tend to do at some of these races. Uh, Well, pretty much every race we see carnage to some degree. Uh, Steve Torrance blew up two engines in very, very uh, nasty fashion, and they were two engine failures that were not precipitated by mixing up cylinders, there was no raw fuel out of the pipes, it was a car that was on a very strong run, and then whammo, a failure. Our understanding, or I should say my understanding in conversations uh, regarding those two instances were uh, parts failure. And uh, the, the same part failing twice in that uh, it was in the valve train system of the engine. Um, and so, you know, those valve train failures, when they happen, and obviously they happen in, in a way that is instantaneous, the driver has no idea it's coming. The crew doesn't either. You have to start wondering about the batch of parts you have. And, and I think that is that has got to keep some guys up at night only because. These are not things you can visually inspect and look at and say, okay, well, this is going to probably fail. We should swap it out. And as we know, the Capco team is the most singly, singly most diligent team in their parts cycling. So they do not have old equipment in that engine. In fact, they have the best newest equipment you can have in that engine. And so in this situation, when you suffer the same failure twice of the same part and piece, and you're buying this stuff in bulk, in the off season to start putting your stuff together, it has to make you a little nervous because perhaps in this run of parts, there are some rogue elements in there, some, some manufacturing defects perhaps, who knows. But to see the same thing happen twice to a team that really doesn't typically suffer that type of stuff uh, was an eye-opener and certainly did not surprise me uh, when in conversations I learned it was a parts failure as opposed to some sort of an issue. Uh, a team that is definitely on the struggle bus right now. Um, And again, you, you learn things through conversation and the struggle bus ride right now that Josh Hart is on really after we saw him come out and win the call out, he wins the call out in Gainesville. It's like, man, this guy's back. He is on it. And since that point, I mean, the car has absolutely smoked the tires basically on the step of the throttle virtually every time they've tried to go down the racetrack. So, You know, I think in in Phoenix, if you look at it, if you if you take the aggregate of all his runs and add it together, I'm not entirely sure that car, if you add all the distance together, actually makes it to the Christmas tree before it smokes the tires. And Ron Douglas, the entire crew, you're talking about experience, a wealth of knowledge and certainly guys that, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's better than what they've shown, but certainly there is a more high level of talent and expectation there than what they have shown and, and what we have seen. My understanding is that they're working with some new parts over there, and it is the ability to manage the new parts and clearly the the new aggressive power they're making off the starting line that has been uh, stymieing them. There was a lot of people testing after the Arizona Nationals. Jasmine Salinas made runs in a top-fuel dragster, her first initial foray, my understanding, into dipping her toe into top fuel, a place that we all expect her to end up, uh, but that journey has officially started and making some very uh, early testing runs for Jasmine and the Scrappers' top fuel car. Mike Salinas's car came out, ran 368 on Friday night. You know, we talked a lot on the show about putting the whole kind of uh, what was dubbed weight gate uh, situation behind everybody, and that has been put behind everybody. He claims that he ran the car actually about 30 pounds heavy on Friday night just to prove a point and when they went 368, it landed them number two, and certainly uh, everybody kind of, um, anybody that had anything to say certainly hushed up after that. Uh, We had Vice President of Competition Ned Walliser on our television show to give some background and some depth to the story of what happened, but that is officially a a moot, uh, closed issue at this point, and we just go forward, and you kind of pay attention to you know, pay attention to how the car runs and what that team does and um, they didn't miss a beat and I do not expect them to be missing many beats as they have shown us over the last couple of years for the other side of the coin it, this is this was a tough situation to watch kind of unfold over the course of the weekend Jeff Deal and Jim Campbell got together uh, my understanding Campbell brought in some sponsorship uh, in order to have the seat of the car Jeff's going to concentrate on tuning the car uh, they did not run the first qualifying session. They did run the second qualifying session, but the car went across the scales light. Now, one can, uh, one can ex- I'm not going to say expect that, but one can kind of understand how that could have happened. Jeff Deal is one of the biggest funny car drivers probably in history. He's a big guy. He goes way over six feet, just a big kind of mountain of humanity. Uh, Jim Campbell is much smaller than him. So between compensating for the driver weight how much fuel was consumed on the run. You know, these are the two main factors I would consider that uh, may have left them a little light going across the scales. So that run was disallowed. Now, the time of the run was disallowed, but because he staged the car, it allowed him to be on the competition ladder. And if you're confused by that, there are rules in the book. It is it is in black and white. If you stage the car under its own power and qualifying and make an attempt even if the attempt fails, if you don't make it to the finish line, or if the attempt is negated because you're light on the scales, or you scrape the wall, or you cross the center line, you are not taken off of the ladder. You are given a 28-second or a 32-second elapsed time, and you're placed at the bottom of the ladder, or the bottom of the qualifying sheet. But in this situation, uh, Jim Campbell was given that default time, so he was um, you know, placed on the ladder. Now, before qualifying session three, there was a really bizarre incident where the car actually ran into the back of the tow vehicle in the staging lanes. And when that happened, it it, it cracked the body basically in the front wheel wells. Um, as the body was up, they were rolling through the staging lanes. There was some sort of a distraction at some point, apparently, and the car ended up running into the back of the tow vehicle, which then, again, cracked the body basically at the where the front fender area would be in a, in a normal car at the, at the top of the wheel arch. So they did not make that run. They did come up to run the first round on Sunday against Bob Tasca III, and the car failed to start. And so that was just a, a weekend that I'm sure Jeff Deal, Jim Campbell, everybody involved would have preferred they didn't experience in the first place. But it was just a one kind of unfortunate series of events following the other. And so Bob Tasca went down in the first round with what amounted to a competition, single. Another guy who had a problem with this car starting was Cruz Pedregon. And, you know, obviously we come out of the 2022 season. He wins Pomona with that just crushing victory with all those low 380s. And the sky is kind of the limit for this car, as we expect, coming into 23. They did make some good runs in testing, but when it has come to competition, unfortunately, the snap on Dodge has not been uh, has not been sharp. It just hasn't been sharp. Let's just let's just call it what it is. And so they came up to run and you know our TV booth was basically directly behind the starting line. So when they came up to run, we watch them plug the starter in, they spun the motor over and it caught, whoom, you know, we hear the noise, it starts to idle up and then it immediately shuts off. And the thrash ensues team's doing everything they can. Meanwhile, Matt Hagan has done his burnout and, uh, you know, he's backed up some and he's, he's basically getting ready to start moving forward. And once you reach that point, the starter gives the cut sign and, and your opportunity to, to try to fire the car is over. And what we later learned was that it was an air bottle issue. Um, the safety system on these cars. Now, if you have no air pressure in the air bottle, uh, w- the thing will not run. And so when that air bottle was empty, the last gasp of air in the bottle allowed the car to start. And then when the pressure of the bottle ran out, that is when the car shut off. It would have never started. If we had given those guys two hours without a fresh air bottle, it would have never started. So that was a, uh, unfortunately for that team, a kind of a self inflicted wound. Can they rebound? Will they rebound? Of course they will. Um, one suspects that, you know, situations like this, when they happen this early in the season, you can go around and, and look at either new crew members. You can go around and look at maybe this change in process and procedure. But ultimately, you're going to have leadership like John Collins, who's going to get the guys in the huddle. And we're going to you know make sure that never happens again. Basically, I'm sure that's what the conversation was to have it happen in race two of the season, probably better than to have it happen in race 19. I would suspect this car in the next three to four races will reemerge itself as one that should be considered a threat to win. And by the time we get to the countdown should be considered a threat to run for a championship. So early season fobbles, early season bobbles. These are things that we can kind of expect. And it's just unfortunate when they rear their head during the first round of eliminations on Sunday morning, as opposed to, say, oh, I don't know, qualifying session two or whatnot. Um, when we go to the pro stock category, Camry Caruso picking up her first victory was enormous. Uh, the way she did it was enormous. And obviously, if you did not watch the race, either on dot .tv or on the our FS1 broadcast, you um, You missed a real interesting situation in the second round of pro stock. And this one, just like the how did Jim Campbell get on the ladder question, needs to be discussed as well. Because um, effectively what happened is this. Camry Caruso wins the first round, goes to the second round. She's going to be racing number one qualifier Christian Quadra, who had made history as being the first Mexican-born professional NHRA drag racer to qualify number one in any pro category. This was such a big deal that the president of Mexico called them on Saturday night. That is correct. I have not misspoken. The actual leader of Mexico, the president of the country, called the Quadra family to send his regards and congratulate them on this landmark moment. And, again, it just speaks to the diversity of NHRA drag racing. We talk about it all the time, but this was a big moment for their family and a big moment for the sport. So following that, he comes in a Sunday number one qualifier Expectations for the elite motorsports team, expectations for the Quadra family, expectations of the power his Frank Iaconio engine was making—all of it was sky high. And he wins the first round, just like we expected he would, due to his number one qualifying position. He comes in at round two. Of course, Camry is kind of a mid-pack qualifier at this race, and she does her burnout. She rolls in, and when she rolls into stage the car, she what we would call takes a very big bite of the first beam. What does that mean? Well, typically when you see a car roll into pre-stage, especially in pro stock, they go very shallow into that pro stock beam, or that or rather that pre-stage beam, and so you'll see it just come on, and the car will just kind of sit there for a second. Other competitor will come in, and then we either wait a little while, or both competitors go in rather quickly. In this case, if you watch Camry Caruso when she pre-stages she rolls almost all the way into fully staged and then she did go into the fully staged spot over the course of work, her working through a procedure inside the car it rolled ahead enough and she was deep enough in pre-stage that it turned on the fully staged light now here's where the confusion began to reign for the quadra family they believed that it is illegal to double bulb somebody what we call double bulbing of course in a pro category that is incorrect Sportsman categories observe what is known as courtesy staging. And this is where the confusion came. And if you listen to the audio of Fernando Quadra Sr. saying that it was illegal what she did, and that's why we had to kind of correct him because uh, it it is not illegal. It is bold, and in this case it was accidental, but it is not illegal. In sportsman racing, courtesy staging. One driver pre-stages, the next driver pre-stages. Then both drivers proceed to stage. In a heads-up professional category, you do not have to wait for the other driver to pre-stage. You can simply roll in and put both bulbs on. And what that does is it changes the cadence of this whole process for the competitor who looks over and has yet to turn on a pre-stage bulb and sees two bulbs lit on the other side of the racetrack. Why? Simply put, once that driver goes into pre-stage, a countdown clock begins inside the auto-start system of our Compulink timing system. That that countdown is seven seconds. Christian Quadra went into pre stage with the belief that they were going to back Camry Caruso out and then she would pre stage, stage, and run. That was their big mistake. He sat there for seven plus seconds. He sat there long enough and failed to stage, so the red light came on. He was disqualified, and then Camry went down the racetrack unopposed. And that is where the big argument and the anger took place on the starting line is the Quadra family was incensed that this happened and then very angry that there was no disqualification for Camry. um, And you can kind of understand why it is a very tough lesson learned um, by Christian Quadra, a lesson that you, you, you it's tough. It is a tough thing to do when you're the number one qualifier. You are in the best race car of your life and you have a what you believe and maybe what the rest of us believed, a very good shot at winning the race to have it all taken away this abruptly and kind of in this shocking fashion really left everybody with their jaws hanging. And, you know, adding to this is, you know, a little inside baseball here. After all, we are on the Insider Podcast. After the run happened and the dust settled and everybody was in the pits, my understanding and what I have heard is that Camry did go to the Quadra pit area to apologize and, and was kind of run out of there on a rail. And it's one of these things that maybe cooler heads prevail what well, by the time we get to Pomona. Or it's one of these things that starts to build a um, a rivalry, unwittingly or not. And and truly, when I sit here and, and we're talking about this right now, I do not believe Camry Caruso did that on purpose. I don't I don't think she did. I've never seen her race like that. She's raced all different types of cars in different categories. I do think that she was in deeper than she needed to be pre-stage and the car went ahead um, a very short of distance and turned on the fully stage bulb. So um, take that for what what you will. Maybe she did do it on purpose and maybe she's she's doing a good job of fooling all of us. But, you know, I'm very interested to see when we get to Pomona if the cooler heads have prevailed if, if people are back on speaking terms or if this is the start of something really interesting between the KB Titan organization and Elite. Not to say there was a ton of love there in the first place, but I can tell you that there is there was a lot of long faces there when the final round came down to Bo Butner and Camry, and Camry got the better of him at the finish line. Uh, it was not a typical um, starting line environment. Uh, after a final round victory for somebody, at least on one side of that racetrack. So, listen, there's nothing more I like in this sport than a little uh, than a little animosity, a little fire, a little heat. And I believe that we're going to have a little more of that fire and that heat, especially um, the fact that we get to race just a week later, less than a week later, in Pomona. So, you know, Camry becomes the second woman in history to ever win an NHRA Pro Stock Wally. She is the eighth woman in NHRA history to compete in in pro stock, and she is the 19th different professional female winner we've had in terms of the number of uh, you know each individual person. We've had 19 different women win on a professional level over the years. So uh, that whole thing will be very, very interesting to watch the dynamic of that kind of play out. I think when we talk about uh, Robert Height and his victory, this was the type of victory that shows what a championship caliber team is. When qualifying is such a frustration, when qualifying delivers you none of the results you want, when you have a mid-four-second car coming into the first round and you have to race John Force, these are not the things you want at all, ever. And so, especially at a racetrack that you were so dominant at a year ago, as Robert and Jimmy Prock were, now with Thomas Prock on that team as well, um, I don't know if any of us expected Robert to be that deep in the field. One of the things I will say is Tony Pedregon was steadfast, steadfast in telling me and telling you, the viewer, over and over again, that these guys, it doesn't matter where they qualify so long as they're in the show. And darn if he wasn't right, because race day came around, uh, whether it was conditions on the racetrack, whether it was simply their approach, uh, Robert turned into Robert and Jimmy and Thomas turned into Jimmy and Thomas, and lo and behold, he's in the final round next to Caps, and he puts the hurt on Caps and wins in Phoenix for the second year in a row. There are teams that would have folded under the pressure. There are teams that didn't qualify well that went out in the first round because they were trying to press too hard because they just weren't able to make that leap from a crummy qualifying effort to a strong first round of eliminations, and these guys did it. And that is how you win championships in this sport. You win the championships in this sport by being undeterred by either early race failures or early round qualifying failures. You you move ahead and know that you're better than those and work to correct them as opposed to wallowing in the misery or the frustration or the anger of not being where you feel you should be on a qualifying order. We had uh, Tony Stewart in the booth which was great. Uh, Tony came in and hung out with us for the second round, and um, he got to see both of his cars advance, both of his cars advancing again into the the Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge for Pomona this coming week, and that's always a good thing for bonus money for crew members and certainly those countdown bonus points as well. Antron and Sean Langdon, let's talk about those two guys who for the first two races have put on two of the best side-by-side top fuel runs ever ever bottom line end of story two ten thousandths of a second a whole shot win for antron brown and gainesville 65 ten thousandths of a second a whole shot win for sean langdon in phoenix i know they don't want to race each other again in the first round i i respect and understand that but my word i want i want them to race every week i know they don't want it but i do and you know, we talk about different dynamics between drivers and people in the sport and teams. Like we're just talking about maybe KB Titan and Elite, or you know Camry Caruso and the Elite side of things. We, we've had those conversations, but then you talk about two guys like Antron Brown and Sean Langdon, who do have ultimate respect for each other. I'm not sure that when drivers say that all the time, they truly mean it. I think sometimes they're they're saying it to be cordial, um, they're saying it to be deferential to an opponent, but. When Sean Langdon and Antron Brown get on the starting line, in my opinion, you are seeing the peak of what it means to be a professional drag racer. Those three words, those three words, are somewhat sacred in my mind. Professional drag racer, and the performances that both Sean Langdon and Antron Brown give us when they race each other sums up that. That is what it looks like, guys. That is what it looks like. That is what professional drag racer stuff looks like. Not giving your opponent an inch, being very, very precise in how you're staging your car, having a strategy about how you're going to do what you're going to do in the starting line, and then executing it. And that strategy isn't necessarily going to hang this guy out, I'm going to rush this guy in. That strategy is how deep you're going to put that car in the beams. That strategy is kind of what the timeline is going to be between the burnout and staging, and that strategy is something that both Sean Langdon and Antron Brown understand maybe better than anybody else in Top Fuel. I wish there was some way, and maybe we can get creative and figure out a way, to look at and really study the way that those two guys raced each other in these first two races, because I don't think it was the same way twice. And you heard Sean Langdon say, he beat me on a whole shot at the first race, and he sure is... Heck, he didn't use the word heck, but I'm using it here. He sure as heck wasn't going to beat me on a whole shot again. And Sean's the type of guy that doesn't go back to the pit area after that two ten thousands loss in the first round of Gainesville and just go, okay, well, that happened. He goes back and breaks it down mentally, and then he'll go back and break it down looking at the numbers. And he spends a lot of time pouring over information. Antron does the same thing. They are drivers that treat driving like a crew chief treats tuning and that is not a large number of people that do it that way very few and i i i am i'm am not going to say only two because we have such we do have such great talent out there there are other drivers that have this similar approach but my argument is that antron brown and sean langdon's approach even among their peers that are very good is different and the result of that is what we get to see when they race each other who is fantastic uh, Antron, rather Austin Proc and and Steve Torrance continue to deliver their own level of action. And the difference between Antron and Sean and Steve and Austin is not talent because they're all four great. They are all four great. Proc hasn't won a championship yet, but the other three have, and multiples in fact. But the difference is the way that those two competitors view each other, when they go up there to race and that gives us a whole different style of entertainment that gives us the seattle final round with the two bizarre reaction times that gives us what we just saw in phoenix with the two bizarre reaction times and you know steve flicker in the bulb and and which he typically does but he's a master at it maybe more than anybody you got austin all geared up over there to compete with him and during steve's top end interview he said hey listen you know, some people do things some one way, some people do things another way. He said, But Austin's a little crafty up there. I'm a little crafty up there. And the, the 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 genesis of that gives us what we typically see. And it's like anything else in sports, winning ugly is still a win. Whether it's a round win or a race win. There is no such thing as a as a bad looking win light. And so I think, you know, when you really when you really boil this sport down. And and this is, again, my own personal opinion as I'm injecting in here. But when you really boil this sport down and you become like a granular level fan of it, those are the things that you really start to get enjoyment out of and, and get really in the weeds about in the, in the best of ways that 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 numbers game, you know, that shows us on a time slip things that are happening inside the race car. That numbers game of Langdon and Antron, 2,065, 10,000s. Surgical on both sides. Just great, great drag racing. That numbers game of Steve Torrance and Austin Prock, never being able to seemingly have any comfort with each other on the starting line, which is fantastic. I, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything better. And I know there's no comfort of Antron and Sean Langdon. That they're not comfortable up there, but, but there is a clearly a level of discomfort In a competitive sense between Proc and Torrance. And what's better than that in this sport? Nothing is better than that in my mind because it makes me lean forward now every time they race. What's going to happen this time? What could possibly happen next? We may see this weekend. And so, you know, those are some of the things that really stuck out to me Um, over the course of a Phoenix race day that was, you know, a three-category race. Uh, We'll get our pro-stock motorcycles back when we get to Charlotte. Of course, we're going to go four-wide drag racing in Las Vegas um, after we have a week off following the Winter Nationals this weekend. And so the other thing that, you know, the inside baseball, the other thing that allows the three-class race allows us to do on television, we get to have more time. And I'm sure that you as a viewer, watcher, notices it. Um, it is it is abundantly clear to to us that are obviously making the show, but when you're able to give a little more time for each pair, you're able to give a little more explanation, able to give an extra replay set or two to investigate something or look at it. When we see this stuff happen in real time, uh, it can your eyes can lie to you. There is no question about it. Your eyes can lie to you. How many times do you as the viewer or us as the 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 commentary team look at a replay and say "aha"? Couldn't see that in real time, but check this out. Jim Maroney's car folding up the the mud flap on the side of the body was something that in real time, neither Tony or I could see from our angle of viewing. And then we go back and look at the replay, and it makes you break out in a cold sweat because as that mud flap, that little canard on the side of the, the top fuel body fails and folds up, it ends up inches away from a tire turning 300 and some miles an hour. If it hit that tire when it was, the car was going that fast, it would have been a catastrophe. And yet it was like one little Zeus fastener left holding the whole works together after it broke. So, you know, our ability to do that is, is obviously enhanced in these, uh, these, these races where we have three professional categories, which we will again this weekend. And so we'll also have Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty back. If you're wondering about the Pro Stock Motorcycle Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty, when we pick that up again, it will be at Charlotte. We do not do the Too Fast, Too Tasty program at four wide races because it would be too difficult and too confusing and weird. So, yes, the bikes are coming back in Charlotte, but their addition to Too Fast, Too Tasty will begin in Chicago. So, the conditions coming this weekend in Pomona as we look forward to the Winter Nationals are, I guess, kind of SoCal wintry. The high temperature, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, is not projected to reach more than 65 degrees. And on Friday, it's supposed to be 61. And what does that mean? Well, a lot of times we we think about, and, and I did this, I did this, we all did this. If you listen to the Insider Before Phoenix, we were all giddy on what we were going to see performance-wise. Tony Pedregon, who doesn't predict anything, predicted that we'd probably see the 300 mark broken in the eighth mile. We didn't get it. Not even close. And so for me, that um, tempers my outlook for Pomona, and that's not being negative. I'm not saying, oh, man, it's not going to be as fast as I think it is, but it's kind of training me to not get overly over my skis, not get overly enthusiastic, not get the, 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 the horse ahead of the wagon or the wagon ahead of the horse, however that expression goes, um, and to be more realistic in, in what I should expect, because these cool conditions are... Well, they're not totally foreign to these teams. They will likely present some hiccups. And if the rain comes in Thursday, which I hope it doesn't, because we have a full day of Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series uh, action slated for Thursday at the Winter Nationals, it may also change the dynamic of the racetrack on Friday, kind of what we saw um, in Gainesville, where the rain came in and they had to scrape the track, and it just, it on Saturday, on Sunday, it was throw down nasty, but on Saturday, it needed that day to be kind of seasoned and work back in again. So if we don't necessarily get the sportsman traffic down the racetrack on Thursday, Friday may be a more tentative approach day than we'd expect. Maybe Friday becomes a high 390, low 40 day for a lot of qualifiers to make sure they get a good spot, as opposed to a day that we sh- maybe in in... in Moments past would consider, okay, the premier cars here are going to run 385 or better in funny car. Top fuel cars are going to be 365 or better in some of these conditions. That may well be the case at some point this weekend because we are going to have three days of it. And the idea that they're going to come out of the gate trying to put one, you know, hit home runs over the fence is different. And um, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the way it goes to start with. Do I think we could see some just jaw-dropping numbers by the time we leave Pomona on Sunday afternoon? Absolutely do. I absolutely do because again, it's never going to get hot. It's not like Friday is going to be freezing cold and Sunday's going to be 100 degrees. It's never going to get there. So Saturday and Sunday, perhaps more so than Friday, will be those days where performance could really be at a paramount. I look forward to it. I always look forward to going to Southern California. And again, I've said this on the show before, but as a guy who grew up in New England, um, you know Southern California, the roots of this sport are there, the history there, the fact that we are having our first race in the In-N-Out Pomona drag strip era is huge. Uh, In-N-Out's been helping to promote the Winter Nationals. We would certainly love to have you there. NHRA.com, grab your tickets. It is going to be an awesome weekend to see these cars that just competed a week ago throw down again. 14 Nitro cars apparently stayed and tested in Phoenix. So there's a lot of people still trying to figure a lot of stuff out. And the beneficiary of that is is obviously you and me. The more they test, the more runs they get, the more confident they'll be in whatever setup they put in the car when we get to Pomona. I am sorry that this is a total monologue episode. We'll be back with a normal cast of characters. We'll get some drivers involved next week to talk about the first two stops and what has been dubbed the, uh, the Southwestern Spring Swing. As we have kicked it off in Phoenix, we're going to Pomona. And then, of course, they're going to be in Las Vegas. I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you, get your tickets on NHRA.com, whether you're coming to Pomona or you're coming to Las Vegas. Or you can come to them both. It's only, what, a three-hour drive between the two racetracks? going to be a fantastic weekend of drag racing, starting on Thursday. Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series action. The NHRA Wally Parks Motorsports Museum is hosting a Night of Champions as well. I believe Jack Beckman will be hosting that uh, soiree, if you will, at the museum. You can check NHRA.com for all the details. And... That's about it for this week. I think Phoenix um, Phoenix showed us some great stuff. It shows us a Coletta Motorsports team that is rapidly on the rise. It shows us an Alexis DeJoria driven car that is being tuned like a fiddle by Dell and Nicky Bonifani. It shows us Camry Caruso is a legitimate player in pro stock, and her inclusion in the KB Titan team has brought her to a next level of competition. It shows us that Erica Enders can start a season with frustration and is she going to break out of it frankly the numbers say this is the worst start to a season she's had since 2016 the year that she changed brands and really didn't have much success at all she's not in the top 10 of points after two races which seems insane but knowing her car didn't start in gainesville and she didn't get out of the first round at phoenix that starts to make a little more sense we know that in Top Fuel Eliminator, we're going to see cars like Antron Brown, who's yet to break through this season. Clay Milliken and Josh Hart have been very short on luck this year, and we have plenty of other contenders who are going to try to wick it up and do a better job. You have J.R. Todd, who's had a very solid car to start things off. And, of course, we have Mission Too Fast, Too Tasty on Saturday, which will include Pro Stock, Nitro, Funny Car, and Top Fuel. Those semifinalists battling it out, not only for money... But also for points in qualifying session two and three. Heads up drag racing on Saturday at the Winter Nationals. What is better than that? Thanks for listening to this episode of the NHRA Insider. Like I said, we'll be back next week post Pomona to get you caught up on all the good news, the bad news, the tough news, the inside gossip, and the inside stories here on the NHRA Insider.